Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Monday, May 24th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. A commercial airliner in the skies over Europe forced to land in Belarus by that nation's government. On board, a leading dissident whose life is now in jeopardy. A fragile peace in Israel as U.S. diplomats work to ensure that a lasting peace takes hold after several weeks of deadly attacks across Israel and Gaza. And coronavirus infections dropping in the U.S., but so are vaccinations ahead of an important goal set by President Biden. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. International outrage, a growing outcry over a stunning move by the dictator of Belarus. His regime forcing down a passenger jet to arrest a leading dissident. Now that man could face the death penalty. International outrage over the forced landing of this airliner with more than 170 passengers on board, including U.S. citizens, deplaning in Belarus under the watchful eye of KGB agents. After air traffic controllers, they are told the pilots of a potential security threat. A Belarusian fighter jet sent as escort, but there was no bomb threat. The Belarusian authorities knew that if they mentioned a bomb or if they mentioned a direct security threat to the airplane, that pilot would be obliged to get that airplane on the ground as quickly as possible. It, it may be a bit far to say it's state-sponsored terrorism, but it's not too far to say that it's certainly state-sponsored thuggery. The Ryanair flight was traveling from Greece to Lithuania Sunday. Several European leaders say it was all a plot by Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko, often called Europe's last dictator, to detain and arrest 26-year-old Roman Protasevich, a prominent opposition journalist who helped lead massive protest against Lukashenko's re-election last year. His regime is threatened, he's feeling heat, and the, uh, the dissident movement uh, that this journalist was sponsoring uh, obviously was getting under his skin. Passengers sitting near Protasevich describe him racing to delete sensitive information from his phone and laptop once he realized the plane was landing in Minsk, Belarus's capital. Now Lukashenko is facing swift condemnation for the forced landing. The Biden administration is condemning the government of Belarus. The International Air Transport Association tweeting, We strongly condemn any interference or requirement for landing of civil aviation operations that is inconsistent with the rules of international law. The prime minister of Greece, where the flight took off, calling it unprecedented and shocking. Prime Minister of Poland calling it an act of state terrorism. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken demanding the journalist immediate release. The Ryanair chief has called the flight's diversion a state-sponsored hijacking, and EU leaders are now considering new sanctions against Belarus. However, Russia is supporting the Belarus regime. And now to the Middle East. The tense ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is holding for now. Today, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is traveling to the region for meetings with Israelis and Palestinians to build on last week's breakthrough. Edwin Piti has the latest details from Washington, D.C. Edwin. 
Andrea, the Secretary of State Antony Blinken is going to press the Israelis and Palestinians to build on last week's Gaza ceasefire. The plan is to work together to resume the long-stalled peace talks in the region. The visit was announced by President Biden saying that starting today until the 27th, Blinken will visit Israel, the West Bank, Jordan and Egypt for what the White House is calling this administration's highest level in-person meetings on the crisis. In the last hours, Blinken said his primary goal will be to try to go for a permanent ceasefire and discuss an urgent infusion of humanitarian assistance into Gaza. Take a listen. President Biden's been very clear that he remains committed to a two-state solution. Look, ultimately, it is the only way to ensure Israel's future as a Jewish and democratic state, and of course, the only way to give the Palestinians the state to which uh, they're entitled. That's where uh, we have to go. But that I don't think is something for uh, necessarily for today. Um, we have to start putting in place the conditions that would allow uh, both sides to engage in a, in, a, in a meaningful and positive way. While Blinken will meet with the leaders of Israel, the Palestinian authorities, Egypt and Jordan, he will not see anybody from the militia Hamas movement that runs Gaza. Hamas is a U.S.-designated foreign terrorist organization and contacts between U.S. officials and that group are banned. Democratic allies in Congress criticized the Biden administration for its initial hands-off response to the deadly violence in Gaza and demanded it take tougher stance on Israel. The White House defended its response by saying it engaged in intense but quiet high-level diplomacy to support a ceasefire which was ultimately arranged last week after Egyptian mediation. Secretary Blinken added that the time is not right for an immediate resumption in negotiations between both sides, but that steps could be taken, mainly humanitarian initiatives, to repair damage from Israeli airstrikes in Gaza, which caused significant damage to civilian infrastructure and debt. Reporting live in Washington, D.C., back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Edwin, for all those developing details. And now saying in Washington, National Guard troops who have been deployed to guard the U.S. Capitol started the process of leaving Washington on Sunday. Retired Lieutenant General Russell Honore says the mission of securing the Capitol has been accomplished 137 days after the insurrection. On CBS's Face the Nation Sunday, Honoré stressed the urgency of the Senate passing the $1.9 billion security bill the House passed last week. He says the money is necessary to secure the Capitol going forward, to improve the Capitol Police Force, and to cover the costs of the National Guard. And back at the White House, President Biden is still hoping for bipartisan support for his wide-ranging infrastructure bill. Despite a deepening partisan divide, Biden has dropped the price of the bill from $2.25 trillion to $1.7 trillion in what is widely seen as a concession to Republicans who have balked at its cost and scope. The reduction takes spending on manufacturing, research and development and supply chain out of the talks and drops Biden's proposed spending level on roads, bridges and other projects. But White House senior advisor Cedric Richmond says Biden is willing to change course on the future of the bill if negotiations sputter into inaction. Cases of coronavirus continue to decline nationwide as many states reach their goal of vaccinating 70% of adults with at least one dose ahead of schedule. Meanwhile, new information on the origins of the pandemic starting a new push for the WHO to investigate. Lorraine Caceres has more. 
New COVID cases in the U.S. dropping to 25,000 per day, the lowest level since last June. As more and more people roll up their sleeves and get vaccinated, the number of cases and the level of community risk is decreasing. Half the states in Washington, D.C. have fully vaccinated at least half of their adult population against the virus. Nationwide, the number of people fully vaccinated surpasses 130 million, and more than 163 million have received at least one dose. I have now gone two consecutive shifts in a row without seeing a sick patient with coronavirus, which is the first time since early last March that that's happened. According to the CDC, Connecticut, Hawaii, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, and Vermont have already reached the Biden administration's goal of having at least 70% of adults with at least one COVID-19 shot. Maine has the highest proportion of fully vaccinated adults at 62.9%. As the numbers improve, it's life back to normal for many people all over the country. Massive crowds of people packing the streets of Huntington Beach, California on Saturday night after a party got out of control. Dozens getting arrested. Meanwhile, Pfizer preparing for possible outbreaks in the future. The pharmaceutical company now testing its first COVID-19 booster shot. The first participants receiving their dose Monday. Scientists studying this third dose of the vaccine in tandem with a pneumococcal vaccine candidate that helped prevent pneumonia, looking at the safety of administering them together. 600 adults over the age of 65 are in the trial, and scientists will follow up with them in six months. It's, we're going to be prepared for any and every scenario. So there is no science yet on whether or not there needs to be booster shots. Yes, the, the, uh, the vaccine manufacturers have been talking about it. Yes, when Dr. Fauci has asked about it, he has, uh, has speculated that it's certainly a possibility. And we are planning for it. We will make sure that if that's the case, if that's what the science says, we will have enough vaccines, we'll have enough vaccinators, we'll have enough vaccine locations for whatever the CDC and the FDA recommend. But it's too early to know yet. And researchers are also now looking into new reports of myocarditis or inflammation of the heart muscles in teens, young adults, and mostly male that have occurred four days after getting the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. The CDC says they have no evidence yet to believe that these cases of myocarditis are related to the vaccine, but they're looking into it still. And we will have to wait for the information and the research to see if there is any relation right now the number of cases is very small it's approximately one in every five and a half million people reporting such condition also we're learning new information from the intelligence community the washington post is reporting that the intelligence community community has learned that they are there were sick people sick researchers coming out of the lab in wuhan um, this after the who investigation right now the director of that lab is saying that this report is a complete lie. China, of course, was reporting that the first cases were reporting were reported in December of 2019, and these researchers hospitalized would have occurred in November. So now there's a new push for a new investigation. Andrea, back to you. We'll be watching this very closely. Thanks so much, Lorraine, for that report. And when it comes to vaccines, the availability of those shots in the United States has unleashed a wave of travelers seeking relief after 14 months of pandemic. Thousands of people, mostly those from Latin America, are arriving to get vaccinated, taking advantage of packages offered by travel agencies. Ana de Mendoza has more on this growing phenomenon. 
The COVID-19 vaccine has become some kind of magnet for people coming to the United States to get what they can't get in their home countries. And it has attracted people like Virginia Melgar from Guatemala. We took the opportunity to come with the whole family, to walk around a little bit, do some shopping, and the main reason to come was the vaccine. The whole family? How many members? Ten members of the family and we are all going to take advantage of it. And this is the trend, combining the desire to protect oneself with tourism, something that is benefiting everyone equally, according to this travel agent in Ecuador. Tickets, tour packages, the whole economic rebound has been very high. With the economic reactivation of travel agencies and operators, hotels and services, hotels there in Miami, the city has benefited the most, and now Orlando and New York as well. This young Colombian couple has combined their honeymoon with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Actually, in my country, they are still in phase three of the vaccination, where it's almost impossible to have it in a more accelerated way. And that is the biggest complaint. It seems to everyone that they are too far away for their turn. At the end of the day, experts say what is happening is a positive not only for the economy, but also for the health of the whole planet, because COVID has no borders. It would be wonderful if they continue to allow it, because that way, more people continue to protect themselves, and it decreases the chance of this virus mutating into something else. Reported by Lourdes del Rio in Miami, Ana de Mendoza, U News. In Chicago, it was a weekend of reopenings under new city guidance that allows them to have vaccinated only sections. If patrons are vaccinated, there are no restrictions for them, but the unvaccinated will continue to have distant tables and partitions. Grecia Lastra explains how it all works. It's a tale of two sections at this restaurant in Chicago, Mo's Cantina, an unvaccinated side to the left with distance tables and partitions and a vaccinated section. And then you're free to come on this side to go to the bar, stand by, by. you could actually be pre-pandemic. Owner Sam Sanchez says customers will have to show proof of their full vaccination to get a pink bracelet like this one to relax in a seat or stool in this area with zero restrictions. And just back to normal. This was made possible through these brand Chicago guidelines announced this past week. Quote, establishments can operate without COVID-19 restrictions within their establishment if only vaccinated pardons and employees are allowed within that area. Sanchez says the city has already signed off on this and it's going to make all the difference. And I think I think this helps the businesses, you know, get back to uh, uh, not even a break even, but closer to a break even. He also acts as chairman of the Illinois Restaurant Association, acknowledging there's been a lot of confusion about new guidance on masks and reopening with federal, state and city differences. There's, there's always new guidance and there's a lot of miscommunication. Today's webinar is navigating... Businesses with late-hour licenses can operate without restrictions, but only if all customers are vaccinated. And dance floors can reopen with no masks or distancing. Again, only if a business has verified those people are vaccinated. Here, Sanchez has two sections and one goal. That's, that's the direction we want to go to get back to normal. This is Grecia Lastra reporting for U News. More of U News after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. In the midst of the pandemic, the Latino community in the United States is not only being hit by high unemployment rates and low wages, but also by the lack of financial education. This situation prevents many from planning for the long term, especially in areas like higher education. Jorge Hernandez tells us about an initiative in the city of Los Angeles that could help to reverse that situation. How much money do you have saved at the moment? At this moment, I don't know. I haven't looked. I haven't seen the account, but it's not enough. Financial conversations can be very uncomfortable, and for many Latinos, they rarely happen. Financial experts say the lack of financial education is a problem exacerbated in adverse economic times, like during a pandemic. How to keep the accounts, how to make investments, many companies offer retirement plans and many people do not participate. This prevents economic growth for the community. But now there is a collaboration between the city of Los Angeles, the county, the school district and Citibank to invest in the financial futures of children. They are providing a savings account for 13,000 first graders with an initial deposit of $50. How much money do you have in the bank? $50. The goal is for parents to continue to contribute and help pay for college expenses for children, like little Francisco. A person who has one or $500 in the bank account, the statistics say that one in four of those children have already instilled in them that they're going to go to college. The program's goal is that the $50 turn into a seed that will spur a lifetime of good financial habits and financial growth. Reported by Dulce Castellanos in Los Angeles, California, this is Jorge Hernandez, U News. Last week, we reported on the Biden administration ending the use of immigration detention facilities in Massachusetts and Georgia, facilities which have been the subject of abuse allegations. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas announced that federal authorities will no longer use the facility in Bristol County, Massachusetts, which has drawn complaints of overcrowding and overall inhumane conditions, as well as the Irwin County Detention Center in Osceola, Georgia, after detainees reported being subjected to unwanted medical procedures. Both were run under contract for immigration and customs enforcement. Let's go to Azadeh Shashahani of the Advocacy Group Project South. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to You News. Thank you very much for having me. So what was your reaction overall to this news? We are thrilled about this development. Uh, of course, we have been documenting conditions at Irving for a long time. I've been visiting uh, detained people there at that prison for about 10 years. Um, and the conditions there have always been horrible. And women have faced lack of reproductive health care and pregnant women have faced lack of new uh, prenatal care. 
Um, and so we were hoping that this would be one of the first actions of the Biden administration, given the, the outcry about the um, unwanted and um, invasive gynecological procedures that were done without informed consent. Um, we are happy that the Biden administration um, finally went ahead and um, decided not to detain the immigrants at Irving anymore. Your organization was very active in exposing conditions at the facility in Georgia. Can you describe what kind of abuses were taking place at that facility? Right. So um, based on our documentation over the years, um, in particularly around um, the pandemic, um, even when um, workers at uh, Irving um, had um, you know, signs of COVID, they were still ordered to go back to work. Um, and there wasn't testing being done on a regular basis. Um, and um, immigrants and the workers at Irving were not being given information on how many people um, at Irving have COVID. And so all those um, you know, issues that um, um, were really risky during a deadly pandemic, and on top of it, obviously, the issue of medical abuse um, against detained women. Um, so in December, we actually joined other organizations to file a class action lawsuit on behalf of um, the women who were subjected to medical abuse um, at Irving. So more than 40 women submitted sworn testimony um, in court. The Irwin County facility is run by a private contractor. Now, how problematic is this for profit relationship in the humane treatment of immigration detainees? It is very problematic because when you have private prison corporations involved, um, the profit motive takes over um, rather than humane treatment of immigrants. Obviously, private prison corporations are trying to maximize their profit. Um, and so they would shortchange immigrants on food, on proper health care, on, um, on safety. Um, and you know, here you have the issue of of um, detained immigrants, uh, women uh, in particular, being subjected to medical abuse. Uh, we know that ICE knew about this as far back as 2018, and they didn't do anything. So both ICE um, and the private prison corporation that runs this facility, um, LaSalle, need to be held accountable. Now, where will detainees at these two facilities in particular go now? Well, we are um, asking that the administration go ahead and release um, detained immigrants. You know, there is no reason that, um, that people should be detained in the first place. Uh, people are often um, awaiting um, asylum proceedings or you know, other types of hearings on potential immigration relief, or they might be awaiting a deportation hearing. There's no need why they need to be in detention um, while that happens. Um, especially, you know, when we're talking about the pandemic in a prison, there is no opportunity for social distancing. You know, people are often in close contact and are using the same um, equipment, the same utilities and everything. Well, thank you so much for providing all this insight. Azadeh Shashahani of the advocacy group Project South. Take care. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. 
And according to a newspaper report, at least 11 immigrants working at a food processing plant in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, died of COVID-19 in less than two months. The case is now showcasing a wave of infections at several food processing plants when the pandemic was at its peak. Here's Genesis Vieira with the story. A Milwaukee Journal Sentinel investigation found that one in every 14 migrants who worked at this vegetable processing plant operated by Seneca Foods in Wisconsin died of COVID-19. The publication reviewed hundreds of public documents and spoke with dozens of workers and Wisconsin's health officials. According to Christine Newman, executive director of Voces de la Frontera, an organization that helps migrant workers in Wisconsin's food processing plants, many lost family members. Sadly, we did see many cases where it was more important to make money without considering the lives of the workers and treating them as disposable. The situation in the processing plants in the region was so critical that the workers took to the streets in the middle of the pandemic to demand protection. Maria worked in a processing plant in that state and was one of the first to be infected with COVID-19. It was very bad. I really cried for my children, too, and it was a horrible thing that no one wanted. That is why I told people to protect themselves. Newman says that workers often went to work infected because they were not paid for sick days. One of the big complications was the lack of paid days. The plants just said, we don't have to do it, so we're not going to do it. They treat you as if you were disposable. They don't care about the health of the workers. They just care about their production because they want to make good money. Seneca Foods Company said that, based on the measures it has taken, it does not believe that its workplaces were a focus of COVID-19 contamination. Reported by Vilma Tarazona, Genesis Vieira for U News. And in climate news, the world's largest iceberg is floating off Antarctica after breaking off from the icy continent. The European Space Agency says it's about 80 times the size of Manhattan. Scientists don't think the break-off is due to climate change. They say it's just a normal process called calving. And the first-named storm of the Atlantic hurricane season formed early Saturday morning. Subtropical storm Anna formed northeast of Bermuda with 40-mile-per-hour sustained winds. On Sunday morning, Anna transitioned into a tropical storm but then weakened into a tropical depression later on Sunday afternoon. Anna will likely continue to dissipate. This is the seventh year in a row a storm has been named before the official start to the Atlantic hurricane season, which begins June 1st and ends November 30th. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.